Today we begin a new study. It will come to us from the book of Mark. And over the next seven weeks, what we're going to study is the worthiness of Jesus. And so if you'll open up right to Mark 1, we'll just start there. The beginning is the beginning. So Mark starts off by saying the beginning, and it would be easy to say, well, this is the beginning of his book, but he's actually referring to the beginning of the gospel. And so Mark, the book of, is all about Jesus. And what's awesome about the book of Mark is that it's this action-oriented book, where if you read Luke or Matthew and you study the life of Jesus, it's kind of about what he taught and kind of about who he is. But in the book of Mark, you see what Jesus does. And some people have compared it to a screenplay because Mark just wants to go from one action to the next and even inserts things that, that, that speed up the story, if you will, like immediately after that. And, and, and the point is not that chron- chronologically it was the next thing or right after that, but the point is, look, Jesus is doing things and he's, he's changing the world. And, and over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at kind of the life of Jesus and, and see what Mark is talking about here. Now, here, here's the thing. Mark says, in the beginning, and he's, he's writing to a group of people who are actually not Jewish people, which most of the New Testament is and Old Testament is written to Jewish people. But he's actually writing to a group of Gentile people who are probably in Rome. And so these people, they're probably believers with some non-believers mixed in, some Christians and some non-Christians, but it's primarily Christians, but they unlike the Jewish people, are not very familiar with the Old Testament law, with the traditions of the Jewish people, with the things that maybe they're supposed to know. And and in that, my hope for you is is that some of you, maybe you haven't been around church, maybe maybe you don't know all the things you're supposed to say, maybe you're you're seeing some of these words like righteousness and, and you're like, oh, what are they singing about? That doesn't make any sense to me. And, and what's great about the book of Mark is that Mark doesn't assume that people know things about God, about faith, about the religion that he is presenting. And so what you find in the book of Mark is that he doesn't quote the Old Testament a lot, but you also find whenever he talks about a tradition of the Jewish people, he takes a moment to say, here's why the Jewish people did that. And so for you, if if you're a person who hasn't been in church much, if you're a person that doesn't know much about this Christianity thing, then I think as we go through this book together, what you'll find is that Mark is a great book to help you understand why Jesus truly is worthy. He he also connects the beginning, I believe, to the book of Genesis, right? If you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, the first words are, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so I think in some ways, Mark is saying to the readers of this book, hey, just like there was a beginning when God created, in Jesus there is a new beginning. And so here's my second hope with that in mind. Some of you have been around church forever. You're like the opposite and you know all the stories and you know everything about Jesus. But, but my hope over this next seven weeks is that you will, you will take another step in recognizing that Jesus is worthy. What I've discovered, not just from being a pastor, just by being in church and knowing Christians, is that there are a lot of people who profess to know Jesus who profess to even love Jesus, but they have not truly deemed Jesus worthy of their entire lives. 
In fact, they've barely deemed Jesus worthy of any of their lives. And maybe they'll give up a Sunday morning and maybe, you know, sometimes a Bible study during the week. But their entire lives are not devoted to Jesus. And I believe that's because they have not looked at Jesus and said, you are worthy of everything that I am. Now, here's the deal. He says, in the beginning, the gospel or the good news in the NIV, the good news about Jesus. The more traditional and probably better translation of this is gospel. And the word that that Mark uses, by the time he writes this book, is a technical term for the story of Jesus saving people, for what we still refer to as the gospel. So he isn't just saying the good news, even though it is great news, the best news. He's saying this thing that you know about, that you've heard about, that some of you accepted, called the gospel. And I just want to, so we're all on the same page, because I think Mark's readers might have been on the same page. Uh, I just want to present the gospel to you, if you'll allow me for a second. And, and it's, it's this. In the, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, as I said. And, and then he gave them freedom to choose right or wrong. Adam and Eve decided to choose wrong, and they ate from a tree in the garden that God had told them not to. And thus they became sinners. And the Bible tells us that, that throughout history... From Adam and Eve on, every single person has likewise been a sinner. That's not something I have to talk you into, right? You know that you've done things wrong. And even if you don't believe in God, you know that you're a person who does stuff that doesn't feel right. And you have guilt and and your conscience kicks in sometimes when you do things you shouldn't. And and the Bible says that's because you're a sinner. and, and, And that started with Adam and Eve. In Romans 3.23 it says this. It says it this way. For all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. And so here's what it says. It says, look, you cannot earn your way back. You cannot be forgiven on your own. And so God came in the person of Jesus to this earth so that he could take the punishment of your sin by dying on the cross. And it wasn't just the physical pain that that made him die for your sins, but it was the spiritual agony that he suffered. And so Jesus, God, in human form, died on a cross to save you from your sins. But but the Bible also tells us this in... uh, in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin of de- is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in Romans 10.9-11, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in Him will never be put to shame. And so what the Bible says to us is that even though Jesus died for the sins of every single person, including you, you have a choice to make. You can say, Jesus, I believe in that. I accept that gift. Or you can say, Jesus, I don't. And the Bible says that if we believe that gift and we accept that gift, then we can look forward to heaven for eternity. Uh, We can look forward to spending the rest of our lives in perfection even after this life is over. But on the other side, it says that if you do not choose this, then you are bound for hell where you will suffer for your own sins because you are not allowing Jesus to cover over those sins. Now here's the other part, and this is the part that we're really just going we're gonna to focus on if you're a Christian over this next seven weeks. Luke 9, 23 through 26 says this, Then he said to them all, this is Jesus talking to his disciples and everybody who's around, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it if someone 
for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very soul. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. In a similar way, 1 John 2, 3-6 through 6 says, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And so here's what the gospel says. It says, look, when you give your life to Jesus, if that's real and that's actually happened, if you're really set up for salvation, you're going to spend eternity with him, then you have deemed Jesus worthy of your entire life. It's not just that you prayed a prayer when you were in vacation Bible school when you were little. It's that you, in that prayer, said, Jesus, I give you my life. And in your life, you can see that that is real. And so, here's the deal. God says, you must accept the gift of my son. But he says, in accepting that, what you do is you trade your life. And you say, Jesus, I'll take what you gave by giving me your life. Here is my life. Do with it what you please. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, maybe you've heard of him. He said it this way, and this is going to be a long quote, so pay attention. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of the church. We are fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sins, and the consolation of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that that account has been paid in advance and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Cheap grace means grace is doctrine, a principle, a system. It means forgiveness of sins proclaimed as a general truth. The love of God taught us the Christian Christian conception of God, an intellectual assent to the idea is held to be of itself sufficient to secure remission of sins. In such a church, the world finds a cheap covering for its sins. No contrition is required, still less any real desire to be delivered from sin. Cheap grace, therefore, amounts to a denial of the living Word of God. In fact, a denial of the incarnation of the Word of God. Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Grace alone does everything, they say, and so everything can remain as it is before. All for sin could atone. Well then, let the Christian live like the rest of the world. Let them model themselves on the world standards in every sphere of life and not presumptuously aspire to live a different life under grace from his old life under sin. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism, without church discipline, communion, without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ, as which the disciples leave their nets and follow him. 
He goes on to say, Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it cost a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. Yea, we're bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered Him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Costly grace is the sanctuary of God. It has been protected from the world and not thrown to the dogs. It is therefore the living Word, the Word of God, which He speaks as it pleases Him. Costly grace confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes as a word of forgiveness to the broken spirit and the contrite heart. Grace is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow Him. And that is what the Bible teaches. It says, yes, you are saved through grace alone. But if you are really going to accept and take that grace, it means you giving your life to Jesus. And here, here's the question that, that will kind of drive us in the next six weeks. Do you really believe that Jesus is worthy of your life? I mean, it's easy to say, yeah, Jesus is worthy of maybe Sunday morning and, and maybe a couple of uh, times reading a Bible in a week. But, but here is the real question. Is Jesus worthy of your entire life? And I think as we go through this study over, over the course of these next several weeks and we go into Easter, what we'll discover is that when you look at the life of Jesus, He is absolutely worthy of your life. John jumps right into it because he goes directly into the title of Jesus. He says, this is the gospel, not of anyone or anything. This is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the Messiah the Son of God. The name Jesus is a name that was given by an angel to Jesus' parents, uh, and it means Yahweh saves. That's the name for God that He gives Himself in the Old Testament. And so even in the very name of Jesus, we see that it means, and, and it connects to His greatness and His worthiness, because it, it is God's way, Jesus is God's way of saving people. He also says that Jesus is the Messiah. And if you were to study the Old Testament, what you'd find is that there was one who was promised. Almost immediately after those first sins of Adam and Eve, there was one who was promised that the Jewish people came to know as the Christ or the Messiah. I think most people think that Christ is Jesus' last name, right? It's like Jesus Christ, like Mr. Christ, you can call him whatever you want. But that's actually not true. It's a title for Jesus. And the title references that he is the promised one who was prophesied about for thousands and thousands of years. And let me just stop and say for a second that the fulfillment of prophecy in the person of Jesus is absolutely amazing. I read this week that if Jesus would have just fulfilled eight prophecies, then the chances of that would have been 1 in 10 to the 17th power, the chances of him being able to do that. Uh, that is one... Uh, with 17 zeros. And so the chances that Jesus would even fulfill eight of the prophecies of the Old Testament is one in ten to the 17th power, one in a lot of zeros. It's virtually impossible. And this is what it's like, they say, those, those odds. It's like filling up all of Texas 
two feet high with silver coins and sticking a blindfolded man in the middle and saying, okay, on your first try, I want you to be able to pick up the coin that we mark. It's really impossible, right? I mean, if you had those odds to live, for example, you would know that you're going to die. And Jesus is able to fulfill these prophecies perfectly because he was the one who was promised. It wasn't like God just threw out these prophecies and said, hopefully some guy can fill, fulfill these someday. It's that God said, look, someday this Christ is going to come and he's going to be a king and he's going to save you and he's going to set things right for you and for your nation and for the world, really. And he said, this is what he's going to be like. And when Jesus comes, he fulfills those prophecies because he is the one who had been promised. Now, it also says that Jesus is the Son of God. It's interesting that in the Greek, there's no the there. It's just Son of God without a the in front of it. And, and so in some ways, I think that Mark is saying in his, that Jesus, in his very essence, is the Son of God, is Son of God. John 1, 1 through 3 says it this way, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Now here, here's the thing. We believe in something called the Trinity as a church. And that means that God is in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they are one God, but they are made up of three distinct beings. And Jesus is one of those. And so when we read that, when we see Son of God, it's not as though Mark is saying... Yeah, he's kind of connected to God. You know, God had a child and, and this is how it worked out. What he's saying is that this person, Jesus, is God. In fact, in John 1.14, it says it quite clearly. Talking about the Word, who's a reference to Jesus, it says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Mark says, look... Right up front, before I even start to tell you the story about Jesus, and I think the story is beautiful, and I believe that it's going to cause you and people that you know, as you witness to them about this guy named Jesus, I think it's going to cause you more and more to say, this guy is worthy of my life. But right up front, Mark says, hey, even if Jesus' life wasn't recorded, he is worthy because he is the one who saves, and he is the Christ who has been promised, and he is God in human form. Mark continues from there. He says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare a way. A voice of one calling out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. It's kind of a combination quote from Isaiah 43 and Malachi 3.1. It's the only time in the whole book that he references the Old Testament. Just one time right here. And what's interesting is, is by the time that the, the, the gospel is written, the practice is that when a king would travel to a town, this seems extravagant to me, but they would prepare the way for that king. And so, you know, they'd get things right in the city and they'd make sure that, you know, everybody's ready for them and they got the food prepared and all that. But another thing that they would do is that they would actually build a very good straight road for that king coming into town. In fact, some of those roads, because they were so well built for a king traveling from one place to another, are still in existence today. And so they're kind of like the first good modern roads that we know, and they were, they were key for the gospel being spread so easily in the first century. And, and here, 
we see that in the Old Testament, one was promised who would come and he would prepare the hearts and the way for the King, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, who would come to earth to save people. Next we read, And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, it's really interesting to me that this verse comes before Jesus dies at the end of the story. We don't need to get too far ahead, but, but it's really fascinating to me because what John is describing to these people is, is almost a perfect picture of what it means to give your life to Jesus, that first instance. And so he, he's out there in the wilderness, John the Baptist, and he's baptizing people, dunking them into the Jordan River. But what he's preaching is interesting. He's saying, look, this baptism is connected to you repenting of your sins and getting forgiveness. Now, the word repent is an interesting word because when I hear it, what I think of is simply feeling bad about something I've done. Maybe you're not like me, but that's kind of the picture I've always had. Like, I might admit it. I might say, like, in this case, to God, you know, God, I, I did this thing and I repent. Or, you know, it could be to somebody that is in your life, like, hey, I know that I've been a jerk lately and, and I feel bad and I repent. Uh, but that's not, in fact, what the Bible means. The, the Greek word for repent is a word that means changing of the mind that leads to a changing in life. And so John isn't saying, hey, you know, I want you to feel bad and then we'll baptize you. As long as you feel bad about your sins and maybe admit to it, then we'll get you baptized and you can be a follower of Jesus. Uh, no, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, look, if you change your mind about this coming king, this Messiah, and you change what you're thinking and it leads to a change in life because it's real and it's genuine, then we'll baptize you because you are ready for Jesus. Now, here's the deal. Now, John's working before Jesus dies, and the order is kind of opposite for us in the New Testament. I mean, the Bible says that we accept Jesus, and then we get baptized, and we know Jesus, and then we get baptized. But John's working pre-Jesus' death and resurrection, and so what John is saying is, hey, look, you, you were prepared for Jesus, and you are, you are right so that you will accept that gift when he comes and when he offers it to you. Now, it moves on here, and it says, The whole Judean countryside... And all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sin. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, confessing is kind of like repentance. It's important to know. Confessing, for us, means saying what I did, right? Like, hey, I I did that thing to you, and I'm confessing it to you. But that's not, again, what the Greek word means. In fact, confessing is, is not a very good translation for us because in English we, we just think, well, I need to admit what I do. But confessing actually refers to saying the same thing as someone. Now, when you read it in the context of the Bible and spirituality and the forgiveness of sins, what it's referring to is that we say the same thing about our sins that God does. So let me just give you a couple of examples that I, that I think are, are going to be helpful for you. If I can find them here. It's, it's like this. It doesn't mean saying, hey, God, I looked at pornography. It means saying, hey, God, I looked at women that you created and I abused them by treating them as people that are lesser people and that don't matter and don't have worth. 
That's the difference. Now, hey, let me just give you another one that, that might help you. Um, it's not saying, God, I ate too expensively last night as we come out of this gluttony series. Series, It's saying, God, I spent more money on food last night than you wanted me to, and that money could have gone to save somebody's life. And I know that there are people that you care about all over this world dying of hunger, and, and I realize that, that I, in some way, caused their life to be lesser or, or non-existent anymore. Let me just give you another one. It's not saying, hey, God... I I was mean to my wife. It's saying, God, I treated my sister in Christ, whom you gave me in holy marriage. I treated her badly. And you tell me in your word that, that we are to be as a married couple, a picture of your gospel. And God, I know that you always lift me up and you lift our church up. And I did not give off the picture of the gospel that you have called me to give off when I said that thing to my wife last night. And so the difference, the key... And you see confession throughout the entire New Testament. The key word is not saying. And this never works. It never makes me feel better. It never makes me feel forgiven when I do it. Like, hey, God, I did this thing. That is not what the Bible is talking about. It's talking about saying, hey, God, here's what I did. And I agree with your viewpoint on that sin in my life. Now, here, here's the other interesting part of that section of Scripture I just read to you. is that John seems to be doing everything wrong. But yet people are coming out from all over the Judean countryside to be baptized, right? I mean, even at that time, there was kind of expectations for the religious leaders of the time, you know, like they, they dressed pretty nice and I'm sure they had good meals. And, and we still have that same expectation today. I've actually heard that a lot of pastors go into a lot of debt because uh, they feel the need to live up to kind of the people in their in their church, in their communities. And, and, and so th- this is a normal thing. It was kind of normal back then. And here comes John wearing clothes made of camel hair. Can't be comfortable. I, I just don't picture that as comfortable. A- and going out into the wilderness, away from the people that God has called him to minister to, and he's eating honey. That's pretty good. That's where John got it right, right there. And locusts. And, and so here, I mean, when I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking like, I'm, I'm going to go to somebody else to get baptized. You know, I mean, isn't somebody else preparing the way for Jesus out there? Isn't there somebody? Because this guy smells bad and I got to walk a long way to get to him. And his breath, I mean, locusts, I mean, he better have had the honey second or else I just can't be in his presence. And I, I mean, it just seems all wrong, doesn't it? It seems backwards. But yet, these people are being drawn to John. There's something about his life that is very different than every other religious leader at that time. He becomes so popular, in fact, that Herod, one of the Roman leaders at the time, loves listening to him. And he says that. He says, look, he threw him in jail because he didn't like what he had to say, but yet he was drawn to him. And in fact, John's popularity at the time, is so high that people think he's the Messiah. If you were to flip to John 1, it says, Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, Then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Finally, they said, Who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And so John is this popular figure that they're looking at, and they're saying, could he be the Messiah? Could he be the one that's promised? And you have to wonder how 
Is it possible? And here's what I believe. I believe we find the answer to that question in the next verse. It says, And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am unworthy to stoop down and untie. The reason that I think John had such a successful ministry, the reason that I think John is referred to by Jesus as the greatest man ever to live up to that point is because John looked at Jesus and he said, You are worthy, I am not. He says that he's not even worthy to stoop down. That's definitely a sign of humility, right? And untie the sandals. Now think about this. The the sandals... The the person who untied the sandals in the culture in which Mark is writing was either the lowest of low servant or a slave. And you think about the world they lived in. It's dusty over there. And they'd walk around with their sandals on all day long. I'm thinking that, you know, they don't even have uh, any kind of toilets or anything like that. And so you don't know what you're stepping in. And, And the rich people would walk around all day long doing whatever they do, right? And then they'd come home at night. And you have to think that their feet are disgusting. And John here says, I'm not even worthy enough when it comes to Jesus to be the one who unties his sandals when he comes home in the evening. See, what John says is, I am not worthy. Jesus is worthy. But the truth is, for most of us who call ourselves Christians, we have it opposite, right? We say, look, I'm worthy of most things in my life. Jesus is kind of worthy of some other things. But this guy named John, who changed history, and who was a fantastic man after God, who completely devoted himself to Jesus, even though people wanted to raise him up into power, was a man who recognized his unworthiness because of the worthiness of Jesus, because he knew that Jesus was worthy of every aspect of his life. The truth for us is that if we're going to live the lives that we want to live, then we must be like John and say, Jesus I recognize that I am not worthy of you, but you are worthy of me. I recognize that I am not worthy of you and your greatness and the gift that you have given me, but you are worthy of my entire life. And here is the question that I have for you, and it will be the prevailing question as we go through these next seven weeks. The first question is this. Do you really believe that Jesus is worthy of all of you. And the second question is this, because I believe God wants us to just have a new emphasis on, on, on telling people about Jesus, and here it is. Is Jesus worthy of you telling someone else about? Most of us, I mean, we'll go through our whole lives, even calling ourselves Christians, we'll never tell anybody about Jesus. But here's John the Baptist out in the wilderness, people saying, hey, are you the Christ? You're popular, you're cool, we want to be around. And he's going, wait, don't look at me, I want to tell you about Jesus. And most of us, it's like opposite of that, right? It's like we'll never tell anybody about Jesus because we don't want them to laugh at us or make fun of us or think less of us or think that we're something that, that that's weird or anything like that, right? And so we say, hey, Jesus, 
I'm worthy of these people's affection and their and that kind of popularity and that kind of respect, but you, Jesus, you're not. We look at people like John the Baptist, I think if you're a Christian you do, and you say, wow, that guy's awesome, I wish I could be more like him, I wish I could lead people to Jesus. And here's why I think people were drawn to John, and maybe they're not drawn to you, because John said, I'm not worthy even to untie that man's sandals. He is worthy of all your praise and your entire life, your repentance and your confession and your worship and everything that you do. And so here, here is the thing for you. Some of you who are listening to this, maybe even some of you who have called yourselves Christians for a long time, I think you just, you just need to say, over the course of the next seven weeks, but maybe even this morning, you need to say, you know, Jesus, I've never considered you worthy. I mean, if you look at your life and you say, I kind of live like every other person on the planet that doesn't know Jesus, then, then probably it's you. I mean, you probably have not said, Jesus, you are worthy of my everything. And so some of you listening just need to, for the first time, maybe you've been just way away from God and, and, and you, you don't know God and you don't believe in God, but, but as we go through this six weeks, I hope you'll keep listening and, and you'll say, okay, man, that guy is worthy of my entire life. But some of you, you know, you've been here and you're churchgoers and you're Christians, but you also, in almost the same way, have not said, Jesus, you are worthy of everything. I'll tell you the truth, when, when you say, Jesus, you are worthy of everything, it's life-changing. You're going to stand up here and go, hey, everything's just going to get better. No, sometimes life gets harder because you're saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do whatever I can to glorify your holy name. Then there's others of you, and, and maybe Jesus is worthy in your life right now. And this is what I want from you as we go through this next six weeks, six weeks and you know this. I want you to, G, to deem Jesus worthy of telling others about. You know that it's my goal, it's my hope, it's my prayer that we will be baptizing people up here on Easter together. I will be part of the church. It's already in our plans. I said it before and I'll say it again. It's not going to happen because of me. It's going to happen because of you saying, I'm going to tell others about Jesus. And what I, what I think will happen over the next six weeks, hopefully this is really the goal of this series, is for some of you to go, yeah, Jesus is worthy of my life. I'm going to lay this down. I'm going to do this. I'm going to give my all to Him because He gave His all to me and He's awesome beyond anything that, that the world offers me. And some of you, I just hope that you'll say for you, Jesus is worthy of me. And then for others of you, I hope that you'll say, Jesus is worthy of me telling others about. And the other people in my life that don't know Jesus, they need to know this man because he is so worthy. He is so awesome. He is so great. And so I am going to do my best to say, look, you need this guy because this guy is worthy of everything that currently you are giving to other things. My hope for this next seven weeks is that we will stop acting like we like Jesus and say, Jesus, you are worthy. John says why he doesn't think Jesus is worthy at the end of this passage. He says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He says, look, I might be able to give you a symbol of salvation, but Jesus is the only one who truly gives salvation. 
Our series is not going to be all about the salvation that Jesus brings. But for John, the very opening of this book, he says, look, I can't begin to tell you about the great life that this man lived that that deems him worthy of you. I can't begin to do that without just saying this. Jesus is Yahweh who saves. He is the promised Christ who came to the world to set things right. He is the Son of God. He is God in human form and He is ultimately the one who can bring you the salvation that your heart so desperately desires. And He is ultimately the only one who can bring salvation to the people's hearts that you so desperately want to see come to a relationship with Him. John cannot begin this book without saying, look, I'm going to tell you all about these great things that Jesus does that make Him worthy of everything, that make you unworthy of even untying His sandals. I'm going to tell you about those things, but none of them can be separated from the fact that He is the only source of salvation because He is God who came to the earth to pay for your sins. And I hope that you will recognize that even that alone deems Him worthy. Will you guys pray with me? Lord, uh, I just pray that, that you move in our in our midst uh, right now, God. Um, and, and I pray, God, that, that you would touch our lives right now and, and you would help us to question, really, God, whether, whether or not we have deemed you worthy in our own lives. And, God, right now, as, as we go into this time, that, that you would begin to... Speak to our hearts about other people, God, that need to know that you are worthy because right now they're, they're giving of themselves to, to so many things that are not you, Lord. And I pray that you would just move in that way the rest of this morning and, and you would move in that way through this series, God, and let us see why you are worthy and let us, maybe for the first time in our lives, just say, Jesus, you deserve all of it. Let us give it all to you. In your name, amen. So what we're going to do, uh, I'm going to have you come forward and we're going to grab communion. And uh, communion is ultimately, like John makes clear, communion is ultimately what makes Jesus worthy, that he offered his life for your salvation. And, and so this morning we're going to kind of begin this series uh, with with the end of the story, with the greatest part of the story, and say, look, Jesus, as we go through this series, I mean, apart from salvation, uh, it's not going to matter. Because this dying on a cross that you did for us, I mean, that is ultimately what makes you worthy of my life. And, and ultimately what makes possible me giving you my life. And so, uh, as the band does this next song, will you come forward and will you take this, this communion, uh, grab it, take it back to your chair, take it. Uh, I'm not going to come back up and... and lead you in taking it, but we'll take it together as a church family as we come forward and grab it. And then uh, and then uh, after that, what I'm going to ask, I'll just give you a heads up, is that we take a few moments uh, in silent prayer, all of us here together, and just say to Jesus, Jesus, you know, have I deemed you worthy? And then the second question is, Jesus, will you lay on my heart some people that, that you desire to know you? And you have those cards, hopefully, that are under your chairs.
And it asks you to put down, and hopefully this is why we're fasting, so that God will lead you in, in these two questions. Have I deemed Jesus worthy? And who do I know that needs to deem Jesus worthy? And, and my hope is that in those silent moments, as we've asked and fasted and said, Jesus, please come and meet with us and lead us and guide us, that Jesus will put on your heart a family member, a friend, an acquaintance, maybe a barista or somebody that you know from work, and, and, and a, a political leader or a leader in our world, that, that God would just put those on your heart. And, and really what I'm hoping is that God puts on your heart in those moments, this is what I'm asking, this is what I've been asking, and this is what we're seeking as a church, that God will put on your heart the people that we're going to baptize up here on Easter. That's what I, I want God to put on your heart. And that you will go away this morning saying, man, these people need to know Jesus is worthy. Or I need to deem Jesus worthy of my entire life. Will you guys come forward and grab this with me?